0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Today we get to talk about two of my favorite topics in one podcast, Judaism and comedy. Our guest today is Mark Schiff. He's a comedian, actor, and writer, and the host of his own podcast called You Don't Know Schiff. He spent years headlining at all the major comedy clubs and casinos around the country. He's also toured extensively with his close friend Jerry Seinfeld. So let's get started and learn about both his Jewish and comedic journeys. Mark? Welcome to Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Nice to be here. And uh, congratulations on your terrific podcast. I've listened to a few of them and it's great stuff. So nice going. Especially my friend, Sam Glazer.
0: Yeah, he was a great interview. And we also, uh, we have to thank Judy Gruen who connected us, who was also a guest on my show.
1: Judy Gruen's a terrific writer, wonderful person. Lives two blocks from me. We have 1,800 square foot homes that are worth $17 million. That's what <laughs> happens when you live in a Jewish neighborhood.
0: Sounds about right. And I must admit, I listened to a couple of your episodes of You Don't Know Shift to do my own research, so I enjoyed both the Kevin Nealon episode and Wendy Liebman, who's one of my favorite comedians, so it was a real joy to listen to.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So how can I help you? How can, how so, can, well, what can is, I do
0: for you? So this is not a customer service call, so you're not here <laughs> to help me, but we're going to talk a little about your life and also your comedy career. So let's start with Mark the Person. And even before we get to your own upbringing, what do you know about the background of your family, like your parents, grandparents, like where they came from and how they were raised from a religious standpoint?
1: On my mother's side, my great grandparents, very, very religious people, Russia. And when my aunt was 90 years old, about 85 actually, she had these beautiful paintings of my relatives, great grandparents, very Jewish looking, with a rabbi. And she said, I'm going to throw these in the garbage unless you want them, because you're, you're the only one that's interested in anything Jewish in the family. And I took them, and they've been hanging on my wall ever since. My grandfather also came from Russia and on my mother's side, and uh, his wife, my grandmother, uh, not religious. My parents were pretty much reformed. So there wasn't much of anything, uh, no, no Shabbos, and we'd go on the high holidays and stuff. And on my father's side, everybody was kosher, but there was no real temple observance or synagogue observance. Although my parents, they sent me to an orthodox day school from uh, first through third grade, a uh, black hat, very Eastern Europe, yeshiva in the Bronx. And the reason they did that was not to get me more Jewish, but it was like a babysitting service. <laughs> the uh, yeshivas would keep you till like 6 o'clock at night, whereas public school would let you out 2 or 3 or 1.30, whenever it was in the afternoon, and my parents worked full-time. So this yeshiva, I would go at like 7 or 8 in the morning and then not leave till 6 o'clock, except on Shabbos, on Friday, get out at 1, and they would drop me off. The school would drop me off at a coffee shop on my corner, and I would sit there till my parents came home from work in the back, and... Uh, That was meatloaf day on on Friday afternoon in the coffee shop. So that was, uh, I always look forward to that. So because of my first three years going to this Orthodox uh, yeshiva, I got to tell you, it had an incredible impact. When people say, you know, I wonder what kind of impact things have on a little kid for a second and third grade, it was life-changing for me. I never forgot it, and I always wanted to be part of the system.
0: Well, wow, so was it at that age that you were able to pick up Hebrew? So you became fluent in reading it and you learned how to daven and things like that. That Like that's an ideal age to grasp those concepts, is that what you mean?
1: Right, yeah, I learned to, to read Hebrew. I didn't learn to translate it. And I had my Rashi. And I, I wore a yarmulke and I uh, continued wearing a yarmulke or a hat. Rarely a yarmulke, but I, I wore, I, I've I not not worn a hat since third grade. And when I went back to my high school reunion, in uh, Forest Hills High School, public school, I would ask the kids, what do you most remember about me? And they said, you always wear a hat.
0: (laughs) I'm surprised you were allowed to wear a hat in school. And when I was growing up, it was always the first thing was you have to take your hat off for some reason out of respect, I think, for the school or the teacher.
1: Yeah, I don't know that they let me wear it in class, but they did let me, I I would just slap it right on as soon as it was over. And there were pictures. As a little kid, I would always wear a yarmulke and I'm the only person in the picture, like six years old with a yarmulke on.
0: Wow. But but as of fourth grade, you went to the public school system, like for the rest of the time that you were in school? Yeah,
1: right through public school system. And then I went, as I got older, when we moved to Forest Hills, when I was about 12 or 13, I started going to Forest Hills Jewish Center, which was a kind of a conservative synagogue. That's where I got my bar mitzvah training.
0: Okay. And what were your parents doing at home at that time? Because you said like they were basically reformed. So were you doing things like a Pesach Seder? Were you opening Hanukkah gifts? Like which of the holidays were you involved in in some way?
1: Yeah, we, we, we had Hanukkah gifts. We we never had a Christmas tree, any of that stuff. All the restaurants, the non-kosher restaurants in Forest Hills and in New York, they were very, very nice about this. Like you would go into a non-kosher restaurant on, on Pesach, and they would have a box of matzah on the table. So they they were very, there was a Chinese restaurant, totally non-kosher. When we walk in, the Mr. Ho was the owner, Mandarin Chinese restaurant, and he would hand us a box of matzah. And... Uh, not that the Chinese had bread anyway, you know, they they'd never had anything like that anyway. I don't know why. He gave us the matcha just to be nice. But whenever I would see religious people walking on Shabbos, I always felt like I was missing out on something.
0: Really? But you, you felt like you were missing something, but it wasn't enough to, I guess at that young age to be talking to your family about wanting to bring more of it into your life or into your home.
1: No. I was a, kind of a wild kid, so I wasn't bringing anything in except, you know, a little marijuana here or there. But I was always interested. I would pop into these little steebles once in a while by myself as a little kid and just sit there. And I continued learning on my own. My parents, for my bar mitzvah, we had it at a place called Little Neck Country Club. And I still have the matches. They used to hand out matches at these places, and it said, strictly kosher. It was a strictly kosher bar mitzvah, and there was no reason my parents had to do that, Um, but they did. And they're both gone, and I can never get the answer. And I don't even know if they would answer it themselves. Maybe the synagogue, the rabbi said, you got to have this. I, I, I don't know, but it was strictly kosher bar mitzvah, which when I look back on I was I'm, I'm, I'm happy about. Now, 12 years old, I'm an only child, and my parents would take me everywhere. They wouldn't leave me home, because I'd probably burn the house down, you know, so... <laughs> They didn't trust me at home by myself. So one night for their anniversary, it was their wedding anniversary, they went to a nightclub. And they took me with them. I was 12. And Rodney Dangerfield, if you don't know, if you got a younger crowd here, he's one of the greatest comedians that ever lived. Look him up on YouTube. There's been no greater TV comedian than Rodney Dangerfield on talk shows like the Johnny Carson show. And I went to see, uh, My Rodney came out, I'm 12, I'm sitting with my parents, and boom, he slaughtered the crowd. Just destroyed him. And I saw my parents, I'm watching my parents and they're laughing their heads off and everybody around them is laughing and banging on the table and spitting water out of their mouth. And I said, that's it. I had a, I had a, a moment. I had a, an epiphany. I said, that's it. That's what I want to do for a living. I want to be a comedian. And I never looked back. Uh, as soon as I was old enough to walk into a nightclub, I did and uh, I've been doing it ever since.
0: Did you even know that that was a profession? before that day that, that people made a living telling jokes or, or really just like that was the first time you were exposed to it and you said wow this is actually something I could be doing I don't have to be an accountant a lawyer a doctor there's other other paths
1: right. I had no idea there was a profession comedy now is taught in colleges and in high school when I was growing up there was no profession ever taught in school that was a night profession only day professions right can you think of anything that you were ever taught in school that, that required you to work at night no. No, nothing. I didn't really want to work. And what comedy offered me was when I, I'm performing, it says, people say to me, where are you playing? They never say where you're working. I like being involved in something that has the word play in it.
0: That's so funny because my father, when he was telling me about like starting a career, he would always say work is not spelled P-L-A-Y. So I was getting the opposite message of, of what you were thinking.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's the, really some of the hardest work of all, being a comedian. but um, On the other hand, it's so much fun. I mean, what profession can you sit and have a cocktail while you're you're working? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I don't even drink any, I don't drink at all, but it's a great thing. You walk in, you go, yeah, let me get a beer. I'm going to be working in a few minutes. Let me me get another one, you know. Nice, right? (laughs) So I saw Rodney, and then when I started working at these clubs, you know, performing, Rodney once in a while would come in, and I got to know him a little bit. And then I got to know him some more. And the first money I ever made was I sold a joke to Rodney that he did on The Tonight Show. It was $25. He sent me a check. Very honest man, too. He said, did you write this yourself? Because some people steal jokes and then send them to other people. So anyway, I became friends with Rodney. I would go visit him in his house. And when he was dying, his wife called me and said, "Uh, Rodney probably doesn't have more than a day to live. He's at UCLA, if you want to say goodbye to him, go up. So I went up to his room, hospital room. He was out of it, but I took his hand and I did the Shema with him. And I don't know if he heard it or didn't hear it, but uh, we kind of did it together and then I said goodbye and he was gone the next day. And it was his, his gravestone, by the way. He's funny, right to the end, his, his tombstone says, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs>
0: Well, that's a beautiful moment that you had that, that Jewish connection at the end of his life. That's really really like inspiring and beautiful to hear.
1: Yeah, it was a nice moment and uh, I hope it was helpful for him because he was, he was he's one of the greats.
0: You had this epiphany where you're seeing Rodney Dangerfield and you're saying, this is going to be my life also. So it's one thing to say I want this to be what I'm doing for a living. It's another thing to actually end up on stage. So how did you through your teen years make it actually happen to start performing?
1: So I didn't start performing in my teen years, but I started I, when I was 18 years old. I used to go to the clubs and watch comedians. I would see people like Freddie Prince, this guy, and uh, um, Richard Lewis, and all these, Andy Kaufman, Elaine Boozler, all these wonderful people. And uh, I once went over to at Bluestone and I said, how did he become a comedian? And he said, okay, this is what you do. You write jokes, you know, like yourself. You know, you write uh, original material, you memorize it, and go somewhere where they'll put you on stage. And that's how you become a comedian. It hasn't changed to this day. So, there's a lot of digital stuff now, but if you want to be a stand-up comedian, you write original stuff, memorize it, and go try to do it. So I did that. And at 18, um, I went to the improv and I performed, and I was uh, strapped with stage fright. And I, after that performance, I didn't get on stage again for five years really 18 to 23 I took off and I just started studying acting I started studying jazz dancing I took some writing classes at the new school for social research I'd read poetry I had poetry readings at my house but no stand-up couldn't do it
0: wait you did one performance and it was it the material or the just the idea of like the public speaking aspect of it that was giving you this sense that maybe this wasn't something you could do
1: yeah, well, the material was just awful, but that that's aside is um, stage fright is something that grips a lot of people. and it's an internal thing. It has nothing to do with the people. It has it's a real high level of insecurity and fear and perfectionism. If I can't be perfect, I can't do this. and 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 a fear of
0: humiliation right. well, your your friend, Jerry Seinfeld that we referenced in the intro has that famous line where he says people are more afraid of public speaking than dying. Yeah.
1: Right. He says, at a funeral, you would rather be the one in the coffin than the one giving the eulogy. problem for me was I always saw the audience as an enemy, not a friend. And I talked to Susie Essman about this on my podcast. Because Susie Essman from Curb Your Enthusiasm, is we have an episode with her that's just terrific. She also had stage fright. And she's not doing stand-up much even now because of stage
0: fright. But she always saw the audience as a friend. I always saw them as an enemy. But how did you, as someone who at age 12 was like, this is what I'm going to do, and then you have this experience that tells you maybe this is not what I'm going to do, and you even go so far as to take five years off from performing, and you're trying all these different things, how do you then find your way back to it?
1: Because it is what I want to do. And I made a decision to just barrel the hell through the thing. See, that's the only way to handle stage fright. You can go to therapy for 35 years. You're not getting rid of this. Some things are with us forever. And they can get better, they can get easier, you can deal with it, but they won't go away. They're just who we are for whatever reason, whether it's our parents or you know what I'm saying? So um, I just decided that there's nothing else I'd rather do than this. And I'm gonna face this stage right head on. And I've had some terrible, I almost fell off the stage once or twice, almost passed out. I've been where I couldn't talk, my throat would parch. But, you know, sometimes it's not there. But I don't care. I, I don't want a job. I don't want a, uh, I don't
0: want to work for a living. Right. So I want to go into that theme a little bit, because when, when I was graduating college, my parents asked me what I wanted as a gift. And I said, you know what? I want a comedy class where the, the final exam is that you're going to perform. And they found a class in New York City where you, you took eight lessons and then you got to perform at Caroline's one night. And that was coming from the fact that I used to do it in college, just informally, like in bars and restaurants and things, and it would go like pretty well. So I thought maybe there's something here. And when I did that class, I started performing around New York City. I was going to Caroline's Stand Up New York, the comic strip, probably 50 or 60 times around New York City in my early 20s. And I would meet other comedians who were starting out, and they were waiters at night. Like that was the thing, because they were all in on comedy. But I had a day job. I was working for American Express. And I never took that leap of comedy is going to be the thing. It was always, I'm going to earn a living and I'm doing comedy on the side. And I think the people I've seen over time who I knew like back in the day who really made it, I think had the philosophy that you had of, no, this is my primary thing. It's not a a side thing.
1: No, it's not. It can never be a side thing. You just can't get good as a side. It's like, this isn't like driving a cab on, uh, you know, two days a week to make some extra money. This is, this is, you know, head on. You know you're facing a bull in the ring and there's there's no way out of there you know it's funny you said about these other jobs comedians are usually pretty good about not having to although seinfeld was a waiter at brudenberger he was a waiter there i was blessed i had a, a three-bedroom apartment in new york at the time you, you hold on to yourself it was 350 dollars a month <laughs> three-bedroom apartment and. Me and another guy, my friend, we got a third roommate. It was three fifty a month. We got a third roommate. And we charged him three hundred. So my rent in Manhattan was twenty five a month for five years. He put me through comedy college, basically. I was able to go out every night, and then sleep till noon, because of that guy.
0: You know, there's there's another side to this. When I was at the beginning and thinking would I actually make a living out of this, that some of the comedians I got to know told me that one of their biggest struggles was depression, and they would say that you know, you're on stage for 10, 20, whatever number of minutes you get. And let's say it's really going well and the crowd like adores you and they love you and they're laughing and said, but, but then a half hour later, you're alone in your hotel room you don't know anybody cause you're in a city that, you know, you never been before. And they were almost talking me out of it saying if, if right now you feel like a well-adjusted person, <laughs> this is going to really challenge that having all that solitude. So I, I wonder if you had that feeling as your career started taking off and you're traveling and getting more gigs.
1: It's a good question. I, I don't think that comedians are any more lonesome or depressed than anyone else. I mean, they do. They maybe have some more angst. See, the, in order to be a, a, a comedian and a, and a good one, you have to be able to see things that other people can't see yet, and then you bring it to their attention. Something has to really n- nibble at you, annoy at you, before in order to make something funny, and that perhaps can get us a little more anxious-ridden. Yes, I've been very lonely in hotels, and I've also, uh, you know, love every minute of it. It, it. swing When I first got married and had my children, uh, my wife and I had children, I used to bring a picture of the family and put it up in the hotel room, and then after a while I had to take it down because it depressed me because I missed them so much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you're a writer, that will help you get you by with your days. Right,
0: it's giving you an activity to do and you have like something to wake up for to focus on.
1: That's right. If you're a writer and you you want to write your comedy and you stand up and you're in a hotel room, there's no better place. Nobody's bothering you. Nobody's going to leave you alone. It's fantastic.
0: So let's now bring religion back into the story. So I, th- I think our listeners have a sense of y- your career is starting off and you're, and you're performing. What role is Judaism playing at this point, like in your early 20s when you come back to comedy? Studying,
1: discovering people like Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I totally loved who his book, Man Is Not Alone, changed my life and really made me believe in God. I read that book and I said, oh, absolutely, there's no doubt there's a God. I always had a a nagging for spiritual stuff, and I had tried some other things to do. Nothing worked for me. It was always back to the the Jewish thing. So to answer your question, I didn't get very involved until 1984. I moved to California. I was newly sober. I stopped drinking. You know, I, I used to drink a lot at the clubs and stuff. That's just... Not everybody does it, but it's easy to get dragged into that. So I stopped drinking and that was helpful. And then I uh, was walking one day in the street and I always wanted to to learn. And I saw this uh, little uh, poster on, this, on, a, on a lamp post and it's a Torah class. And it was for something called Aisha Torah. And uh, I went to this Rabbi Nachum Braverman, his name is. He had a class in his house in the bottom of a duplex, him and his wife Amuna. And it was just a couple of us there. And uh, I fell in love with this guy. Just totally fell in love with him. He was just amazing. And I kept going and going. And I became part of Asher Torah and um, taking the classes and learning from the rabbis. And what happened was they started inviting me for Shabbos. And I had never really been to a real Shabbos. And then Rabbi Braverman goes, Come to my house Friday night. So I came. And then they, they said the wrong thing to me. They said, come back any time. They shouldn't have said that because I kept coming back <laughs> and they kept having me and they never looked at me like, what are you doing here? It was like, oh, come on in. We got an extra seat. And I just kept going. When I got married, my wife refused to let me just drop in on people for a meal without having permission in advance. She said, it's rude. You don't just knock on someone's door and go, can we sit down and eat with you? But when I was single, you know and they were so it it didn't matter they were great and then all the other rabbis Dove Heller and Steve uh, Bars and Moshe Cohn and all these people they just I fell in love with them all I love rabbis
0: so wait these rabbis I just want to ask you one question these rabbis that you discovered because you also mentioned your wife and kids this happens before you meet your wife yes at what point did she come into the picture when I married her
1: no it's uh, (laughs) about an hour before I set you up for that yeah so we got married in uh, 1990, and I was already involved with, with the Orthodox world, already involved with them and loving it. And uh, my wife was Reformed. Like she would have the, uh, on Rosh Hashanah, you would go to synagogue, in the, or on Yom Kippur or something, maybe you would go to synagogue in the morning and then go out to eat in the afternoon. But her grandmother was kosher, imported meat from Dallas, Texas, into San Antonio, so there was a hook there. So she wasn't involved. And I lived on Rabbi Row. I lived on a street called Alcott. There were like six rabbis. So if she wanted to go shopping on Saturday, she felt she had to sneak out of the back. But slowly but surely, you know, she started getting involved in uh, understanding the power of it. Then we had children. When we were there spending that 25 hours with your kids and walking me, walking the synagogue or pushing them in a stroller, it was all amazing. And she saw the benefit of it.
0: So I want to bring comedy back into this because I've interviewed now different types of artists, musicians, piano players, guitar players, one guy who's a sax player, and one of the things they talk about as they start discovering religion is this issue that Friday night and Saturday night are like the biggest nights for their profession. And there's this like collision course of religion and how am I going to make my money? So I'm sensing like your comedy career is taking off at the same time you're discovering religion and the meaning of Shabbos. So how are you reconciling these two things at this point?
1: great question. It is truly the Achilles heel for me. It's a painful thing because I've never 100% committed to Shabbos um, as much as I want to. I guess I don't want to 100% because I would have done it. And I heard Sam talk about it. You know, everything moved in his direction once he, uh, he gave up for me on Friday night or something like that. So I I just hope that God mocks on a curve. That's what I'm shooting for. That's what I'm rolling the dice because um, I've yet to give it up completely. I do turn down gigs. And when I'm on the road, I do keep it as best as I can. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I do the number of things. Hardly ever go to synagogue on the road. So that's, I don't know if that answers your question. I've never been able to completely reconcile. And, and, and something, it's a very painful thing for me. To be quite honest, it always is. Because I, I actually feel... That I was I was destined to be much more involved than I am, and I not willing to go swim in that water completely. It's not a matter of not believing and not trusting and not loving it. It's um, because I have to use my mind. I talk myself out of it.
0: But you know, on the flip side, I was looking at some of your clips when I was preparing for the interview, and I I see in in some of them that you're wearing a kippa. So I'm I'm imagining some of those performances have been on Friday night, and that people in the audience. Who are you know are obviously are secular wouldn't necessarily realize oh this guy maybe shouldn't be performing tonight they're just saying oh he's Jewish and the kepa is like telling them that so do you feel like in some ways it's like a positive message of look what a guy in a keeper can do and he, he can be funny and and it's like yeah. a, a counter to the anti-Semitism
1: yeah anytime I I, I do a Jewish job I, I wear a, a yarmulke I almost only exclusively do the Orthodox Jewish gig so it's it's if it's on a Friday or Saturday. It's without a microphone, and it's some ridiculous event, you know, like where you just have to yell your head off and try to stop people from eating kugel. Very difficult. There's, there's no worse enemy for a comedian than food. Food is the killer of, of a comedy act. Uh, but I do wear a yarmulke at every, uh, anytime I can.
0: Well, I think a difference between your story and Sam Glazer, the thing that he was doing was writing secular music, performing secular music. And when he talks about his career taking off when he went all in on Shabbos, he also changed the kind of music he was writing and performing and he focused in on the religious crowd. So that would be a whole different thing for you to go from mainstream type comedy to the kinds of things that would play on a Thursday night or Sunday, you know, in Orthodox institutions. It would be like a complete pivot for your career.
1: Yeah, if it was if, if I had to only perform for the Orthodox groups, it's nice, but I, I I wouldn't last. They're wonderful. Yeah, they're t- tremendous audiences. Some of the best in the world. I mean, I've gone to Israel a number of times, performed there, and both for secular and Orthodox. But I like these. I like everybody enjoying my comedy. It's it's universal, and everybody should uh, be able to see it.
0: Do you talk to your kids about this balance of the things that you're doing that are kind of quote unquote part of what the religious lifestyle should be and the decisions you're making of things that you're not doing like, how does that play into how you chose you and your wife chose to raise your family
1: yeah well they see it as that I you know I just had to earn a living uh, there's not a lot more than that but they know how important Shabbos is to us I mean w- when we have it you know it's wholly important H-O-L-Y so they know and I always uh, you know listen I, 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 I'm, I'm never without sitsis on and never without a hat on the opponents fill in every day, so they know how important it is to me.
0: Got it. So are they going through like the yeshiva system? Like how how are they being raised? They compared all went to, to day school.
1: They all went to mm-hmm. yeah, yeshiva day school. They went to Yula. They went to uh, Valley Torah.
0: They got the treatment. <laughs> Do you have a sense of them being turned on by and connected to it because they had the opportunity to go through the school system that you and I didn't having being like public school kids?
1: They absolutely have a deep understanding of uh, being Jewish. They hold at the different sections, you know. Sometimes it takes a woman to really, a good woman to, to, to bring you in even deeper. And uh, my my oldest son is very involved with the synagogue and Shabbos, but it was his wife that really moved him along more than I think we did. We set the groundwork. And then, and my youngest son too, They're they're involved. My middle son is feeling his way through.
0: So now let's circle back to the comedy side of you. And in a moment, we're going to play a clip, but something we didn't yet talk about is once you got over the stage fright and you said you were going to barrel through it and start performing, what were a couple of the performances where you started to say, you know what, this is starting to click, or you, you landed a particular gig that you said, you know what, this really could become my career and I could see this lasting.
1: thing. a comedian, you get, you're up there for 10 minutes or five minutes at first, and all of a sudden you get a little laugh. And then you grab onto that. And you know when you get to that tomorrow night, they're probably gonna laugh again. And then it becomes a little bigger and a little bigger. And one of the cues that you have good stuff is if a waiter or waitress laughs at your stuff. Because they have heard thousands and thousands and thousands of jokes and comedians. And if you get them laughing, you know you're onto something, that's gold. So when I started doing a little TV and people started taking notice, you know, you, you did some comedy. So let me tell you, when I started doing it, when the comedy, there were no comedy clubs in the country, just in New York and California or a couple, but in the middle of the country, nothing. So when they finally started popping up, we immediately became headliners. Mm-hmm. And there's no middle, there's no opening. We just went zoom right to headlining. So when we started doing 45, 50 minutes a night, you get good pretty fast if you got the goods and then when you do like things like the tonight show or the david Letterman show or any of those shows the recognition is great when johnny Carson called me over to the couch to sit down with him i did it six times with him it was unbelievable sit an inch away from this guy you know and uh yeah that's how you know you've you've, you've stepped into the big time
0: yeah what is that moment like because i i would think you you were before you got that moment, you were watching other comedians perform and they're hoping for that moment to be called over to talk to Johnny Carson. And then it happens to you and you're now you're sitting on the couch. It's got to be like this out-of-body experience. Like, is this really me sitting here talking yeah. to this legend?
1: Yeah, because I grew up watching this show, you know, sitting, uh, you know, in my underwear as a little kid eating ice cream watching <laughs> and watching this guy on TV. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting next to him with a suit on, you know, it's it, totally out-of-body. You don't know you're going to sit down when you're behind the curtain, if you haven't sat down yet, the booker is behind the curtain with you, and he goes, "Uh, Mark, uh, take your bow at the end, and then look over to Johnny, and if he calls you over, go over, and if he doesn't, just go back behind the curtain, so you don't know, and that's in a moment, when he called me over and said, come on over here, and I sat down with him, and uh, he was incredibly kind, incredibly nice, and my wife's family, wasn't thrilled with her marrying a comedian, but when I did the Tonight Show, it legitimized me in her entire family. Now they started talking about me. Oh my, <laughs> my daughter's married to this guy here, like like I was a great goan or something like that. You know, it's like uh, you just see him.
0: I think that's a pretty familiar story arc where if if somebody does anything that's like high risk, high reward, if they want to be an artist, a musician, a comedian. Everyone around them is worried, saying you're making a huge mistake, (laughs) go (laughs) for something stable. And then when they hit the big time, they say, I always believed in you. I knew you were going to make it. I was always your biggest fan. Of course, (laughs) of course.
1: But the truth is, there's nothing stable. Any job you can be, I mean, if you own your own company, you know, maybe that's a little more, but not really, because the extra stuff you got to do. Anybody can be fired at any time. And we're seeing the biggest people lose it all these days. So,
0: All right. So let's play a clip. Uh, Gary's going to play this for us. Then you can help kind of break down how the bit came about for you.
1: I was just uh, yesterday at the 99 cent store. You ever been to this place? I love the 99 cent store. You know what's great about the 99 cent store? You walk in there and 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 you feel good. You think, I can buy anything I want. I can buy this whole store for $4 if I want. Let me tell you, you know you're not doing well in life if you return things to the 99 cent store. If you actually get back in your car and return a can of peaches. (laughs) And they always have stuff at the 99 cent store that sounds like the original deal. Like, I like Del Monte peaches. So, and they they try to get you, I'm looking at these peaches, it says Del Monkey Peaches. (laughs) I'm gonna give it a shot. It looks like the same thing here. Just like the original item, except no flavor. I put some shaving cream there, and you know, 99 cents. I get home. I shake the can. I go, tss, tss, tss. No shaving cream coming out. Just a sound. Tss. And I'm actually thinking, that's not bad for 99 cents. <laughs> I, I really love this thing. I've never seen anything like this before. And I walked around. I had so much fun with the family. Like, tss, that, tss. fooled you, right? You thought shaving? No, not for 99 cents. They're not gonna put shaving cream, they'll lose money on the deal. <laughs> you look in the back, little letters, no shaving cream enclosed. clothes. <laughs> <laughs> then they had a bag of men's boxer shorts, 99 cents for 40 pair. <laughs> Giant bag of this stuff, 40 pair. And my head's telling me, Mark, don't buy it. <laughs> Somehow they, they, they're ripping you on this one, don't do it. Now I, I'm gonna get it. It's 99, so I say, you ever get six pair out of it, this is a miracle. So I get it home, I put a pair on, the fly is on the side. Right along the leg there. One hole for both legs, I'm walking around. And people see me, 99 cent store, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, the thing fits nice. It's good, it'll stretch it out, it'll be good. It'll be very, very good.
0: All right, Wow, so who let's, was let's... that guy? <laughs> you didn't that recognize guy's... him? That guy is funny. <laughs> <laughs> What's so interesting to me in listening to that, you said something early in the interview about you hit on a concept and you get a little laugh and then the bit expands from there. So did this come about in the same way where you, like you're thinking there's something to the 99 cent store and you're trying out a couple of things and, and it's the oranges and then it's the shaving cream and then you're adding in the underwear like how it grows over time into a longer bit?
1: Yeah, 100%. It it did not start as the full thing that you just played. I had one thing about the 99 Cent Store, a little thing and something else, and then I just kept adding to it. In order to get it to what you heard, if I did it uh, at least 150 times to get to that point, and then another 150 times to make it even better, it doesn't come uh, quick. It could take a year to, to perfect that routine.
0: Right, and I would think also when you're saying it, you end up sometimes getting an unexpected laugh and you realize, oh, there's a little nugget inside of the joke that I'm going to expand on.
1: hundred uh, percent, because I'll add lib a couple of little things in there. Like in there, um, that's not the, exactly the same when I did it on TV. I, added, I, I started stretching it out with the reading the back of the can, the uh, thing. I didn't have that in, at all before that. I, I, I kept adding to it. See, I don't do one-liners. I have a couple one-liners in my act, but I, I do more like fuller ideas than, uh, these one line guys, they're, they're brilliant, but they got to go from idea subject to subject, like one after another. And that's not something I ever wanted to do. It's just a completely different style of comedy.
0: Yeah. I also got in my class, the teacher used to say, don't make the mistake of clearing your throat. If you say three sentences and you haven't gotten to a punchline Then it's, he called that clearing your throat, like you're doing too much setup. You have to be able to, in, in one sentence, put the audience in the scene that you want them to picture with you and then get to something funny immediately
1: sure you're drawing pictures with words and it has to be succinct and quick and you got to get to your point an extra and if we're a butter whatever it is it's too much it's got to go it's like poetry the you know every word every syllable counts
0: yeah, for sure. And so we also, in the intro, we talked about you being a writer. And I know when we were setting up this interview, you shared with me a book that's going to be coming out later. So can you tell us how that idea came about, the name of the book, and, and what readers can expect?
1: Okay, I'll tell you that. I have a book coming out November the 1st, Apollo Publishers. It's called Why Not? Question mark. Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. And if you're not Jewish listening to this, you got to bring the the phlegm sound from your the tips of your toes up. If you had a, uh, you know, a piece of cheese in 1973, yank it up for this word, <laughs> chutzpah. Why not has gotten me uh, a lot of great stuff in life. I got a call from the Jewish Journal in LA uh, years back, and the guy said, can you write uh, something for us? I love your comedy, maybe you can write something. And I said, yeah, why not? And I uh, wrote something. Then he said, can you write something else? I said, yeah, why not? And I did it. And then um, people started liking my stuff, my writing my essays, and then COVID hit, and my work as a stand-up was decimated. Every Shabbos I was home. How's that, see? So I need need a pandemic to keep me home. (laughs) So I decided I'm not just gonna waste my time, I'm gonna write a book. I thought, why not? Why not write a book? I don't know how long I'm gonna be in, six months, five months, a year, who knows? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wrote like the devil was chasing me. And then I sent it to an agent in New York, who I knew, and I said, would you read this? He said, why not? And then he sent it to a publisher, and they read it, and they said, why not? And uh, I'm being published, my book, why not? And it's, uh, it's a story of about 60 different essays, very Jewish, a lot of Jewish stuff in it, a lot of stuff I've learned from the rabbis, a lot of Talmudic, uh, you know. Uh. I have uh, someone that helps me deeply, a rabbi, uh, Yossi Seamus. Anytime I, I have this concept, a Jewish concept, I, I, I run it through him and we run it together to make sure that it's right. It makes sense. Because you know how like, you know, when somebody makes a mistake when they read the Torah, you know, people start grumbling. You know, it's the same thing with this book, you know, like I know that people are gonna just come at me if, if I got the wrong information in there. <laughs> I never understood that. What do you think of that with the with the Torah? You know, people just start yelling at the guy. It's No wonder people have stage fright and want to be, you know.
0: This is the beginning of your next bit. I can see it happening already as you're, as the wheels are turning as we're talking.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely.
0: So let me shift gears again because our listeners will be like truly disappointed given the fact that you've referenced Jerry Seinfeld a couple times just to share kind of how that friendship came about and the performances you've done together over the years. So um, when I went into comedy, seriously
1: went into it after 1977, I met Jerry Seinfeld, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, Henry, George Wallace, Gilbert Gottfried, all these people, and uh, Jerry and I, we we're out of work comedians, new at it. He was the MC at the club, working, selling burgers, and we became friends, and uh, we've maintained a friendship for over forty years, and I've been on the road with him nonstop for the last twenty years, and he pulls in the greatest audiences in the world, and. Uh, He's uh, an incredible friend, and we trust each other. And that's that's really what friendship is about. Like, Jerry's a huge star, and if you're going to travel with him, he better trust you because uh, we would never reveal... Not that he does anything. This, by the way, this is one of the cleanest tours a human being can be on. We exercise together. We eat. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a vegan on the road, so I eat really well. We never go out After the show, we go back to the hotel and hang out together. There's three of us, a producer of the show. We're all married, so we never hang out with any other women after the show or nobody gets backstage or anything like that. It's a very clean Hamish uh, uh, tour. And it's fantastic, you know. I never have to worry about uh, being challenged with any stuff I don't want to be challenged with. You know, the orthodox, I'm married 32 years. They probably saved my marriage, you know, because they taught me how to conduct myself in a way that, in the secular world, you don't really learn. In a secular world, and I have nothing against it, but, you know, if I'm on the road and I wanna to go to dinner with some woman and just chat, it's okay with them, but I know that it's not okay for me. I wouldn't say it's not okay for everybody, but I'm amazed when people say they hang out with people of the opposite sex when they're married and they're able to um, stay true and clean. I'm not willing to challenge myself like that. I don't wanna you know, make God work any harder than he has to.
0: That's good advice. I also think I read that you two have performed in Israel together.
1: Yeah, well, I've gone on the Avi Lieberman tour. You know Avi? Mm-hmm. The Kobe Mandel Foundation. I've gone with him a few times. And Jerry and I went to Israel twice. We did um, the basketball stadium uh, that the Maccabees play in uh, 17,000 people each show. No stage fright, by the way. <laughs> They introduced me to 17,000 Jews in uh, Tel Aviv. We did four shows there. You know, Jerry Seinfeld in Israel, it's like uh, a boy came home, you know, to them. they You know, they love his show. You want to know something? His show is popular in the Arab countries.
0: Really? Why do you think that is? They love watching Jews
1: on TV. They don't like living with them, but they like watching them on TV. They love Larry <laughs> David. They love Jerry Seinfeld. It's unbelievable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's even talk beyond... Jerry Seinfeld because I mentioned your podcast at the beginning of of our episode together you don't know Schiff and so you've had plenty of like really well-known established comedians on there so these are people you have relationships with from over the years or you're getting to know them through the podcast
1: uh we're still early on in the podcast so these are a lot of people that I know or people that know me maybe I'm not that close to them like Susie Essman I I've just known her from stand-up and around for years and uh but I'm, I'm not close to her, you know, but she was stepped up. Yeah, these are people I know, and I have a co-host, Lil little Benjamin, because I don't have the courage you have to be by yourself, you know, <laughs> but I don't go up on stage with anybody, so that that's the difference. Um, I have a co-host, a younger guy. He's a wonderful guy, keeps me uh, from saying things that would kick us off the podcast uh, air. Him and his sisters, she's the editor, uh, Jennifer. But sometimes they'll say things. They'll go, "Yeah, maybe we ought to cut that and stuff like that." You know, because we're very non-political. We're just out to have a good time, and uh, it's very easygoing conversation with some terrific people. And uh, we dig in a little deeper about their life, who they are really, questions about marriage, stuff you don't normally hear. I love doing the podcast. I like you I've become a multi multi multi-millionaire doing it I mean (laughs) I've got a funnel cash like you know my trunk of my car is I can't even close the trunk it's all cash (laughs) under the table and that the government has no idea that I've made 35 million this month alone with this podcast well they
0: will when this episode comes out they'll be after you
1: (laughs) yes yes so uh, the podcast is a great thing and uh, we're hoping it uh, catches on and I'm branching out I'm, I'm doing other than
0: comedians Okay, and to what? What kind of people are you having?
1: Well, we just taped a a, a woman who's a female wrestler. Who, uh, really? Yeah, she's a terrific story. And then we have on uh, Joey Feldman, who's a, a painter. And we're just reaching out to other people now. Because I think people want to hear other things other than comedians.
0: Well, I mean, I think they're probably expecting that from you when they learn about your background. But as you said, after you do like story after story, you want to sort of branch out and have a little more diversity to the kind of totally. stories you bring to air. And it's clean, you know,
1: we don't, uh, and we tell people anything they say that uh, you want to, uh, you're not happy saying it, we'll take it out for you. So we're not looking to catch anybody and do
0: anything. It's not a gotcha interview. So if you said anything today you want us to cut out, it would be helpful for Gary to yeah. know if you regret anything.
1: The entire thing. I,
0: I... <laughs> it's going to be a short episode.
1: So no, absolutely not. This is, uh, we, you know, we went into an area for me that's always been a challenge for me, the, uh, not the hundred percenter. And I'm not always thrilled talking about that because it's it's painful. Not been able to step up completely, you know, and, uh, and do that. Maybe I will one day if I live long enough. I don't know. The good news is I can do it anytime I want, except uh, I haven't yet. So, you know, listening to your podcast actually makes me want to do it some more. Really? Why? Because I hear people that are so thrilled and happy with what they seem to be doing. And uh, they've met that challenge that I haven't been able to face myself.
0: So we like to close all of our interviews with what we call the lightning round. going to ask you some super fast questions that have a funny feeling you're going to be very good at because someone like you who's coming up with material is going to have something to say on all these questions. So you ready to go? I am. Okay. Question number one. Who is an up-and-coming comedian that you'd want our listeners to hear about and start checking out and start listening to you think, wow, this, this person is really talented?
1: My son is an agent. And for CAA. And he handles young comedians. And there was a lady named Rosebud that's really good and really talented. Amy Schumer's been around a a while, but she's from another generation. and She's terrific. I wish I had more. A lot of them when I go to see, I'm not fans. I'm just not uh, of the material. Sometimes I have to actually leave the room. I would never ask them not to say something, Mm
0: -hmm. but I don't
1: necessarily have to hear
0: it. So from all the clubs you've performed around the country, around the world, is there a particular place that whenever you're on that stage, it just feels like home, like it's your favorite place to perform?
1: Yeah, the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach is an incredible club. And it's just reopened after the pandemic. That's the home for Jay Leno. And so many of us down there, they treat you like royalty. And the audiences are the best in the world. One of the great places.
0: So since you and I both have podcasts, tell me, uh, who is your dream guest to land on the podcast? And then once you do, can you then have them appear on mine?
1: Well, I've had a couple, you know, Seinfeld's going to be coming on soon. And he's a uh, dream guest. You know, I'd like to have on, I'd like to have on Elon Musk on the podcast. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Just have a real conversation with him. What's
0: something you'd love to ask him?
1: I would like to ask him if actually what you were bringing up about happiness, if he's a happy guy. I mean, he's one of the richest people in the world. He's, you know, got all this stuff going. I wonder how much happiness that brought him or or what brings him happiness.
0: Well, so my bracha for you is that he appears on your show within the next few months.
1: And my bracha for you is that he leaves my studio and goes right over to yours.
0: (laughs) Amen. Mark, you were out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: My pleasure to be here, and uh, let me know if you get out to L.A., We'd like to have you for a Shabbos meal. Anytime you want, just knock on the door and you'll have <laughs> you a you. don't seat have to make a reservation. You don't have to. So <laughs> thank you.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.